1: What are you doing to my producer? Are you running an ancillary show here? What is going on over there?
2: Okay, I, I left it all on the stage. I'm done.
1: <laughs> Save you a little gas for the great audience, it, huh? We'll,
2: we'll
1: wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> all right, buddy. I hope you're well. We'll be with you in just a sec here. All, all right, Chris.
2: Right, we're good.
0: All right. Hmm. From policy to culture, principles to politics, this is is the Seth Leibson Show.
1: Welcome back. As we head into Hour 3, it is a uh, privilege to uh, welcome back to the show someone I have just learned a tremendous amount from. Uh, the rest of the country uh, would do well to learn from him as well. He is David Murray, David W. Murray. He's a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. He co-directs their Center for Substance Abuse Policy Research. He is a former uh, associate uh, deputy director at the office and chief scientist at the Office of National Drug Control policy and he and uh john walters who's the head of the hudson institute just released a paper uh this month fentanyl is a public health and national security threat with uh, a list of items uh that can go around that could go about i think in getting us a good ways towards arresting this at long last david welcome back to the airwaves of phoenix thanks for being with us
2: well thanks so much seth it's good to hear from you again and I appreciate this opportunity to kind of ring the alarm bell about the fentanyl crisis and take your questions and try to give a sense to your audience as to not just how bad this is, but what we think we might be able to do about it and, how tough of lips that's going to be.
1: Yeah, it, yeah, you said a lot even in there, David, uh, alarming and s- sounding the alarm on this. You were early on this. Um, you started talking about this, uh, this burgeoning problem many, many years ago and way before uh, it became popular in the media or popular in even the previous administration where some people started talking about it and Donald Trump even campaigned on it a bit in 2015, 2016. You saw this much earlier than even then. Um, give the audience an overview of how serious the crisis is now.
2: Well, like you said, there wasn't a lot done, and the media sort of has amnesia about this because there were a few papers we put out mm-hmm. warning that, hey, we've got something new coming down the pike, yep. and it's spreading very rapidly, and it's lethal, and it's going to change the dynamic of all our approaches and it just, with Sandra, you know, the curse was never to be believed. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you try to clarify what, what you can see coming. The data were starting to show up early. About 2015, we saw enough of a leverage point in the seizure data. Mm-hmm. We knew there was this thing called fentanyl. I had to take you backwards, but we got a little time here, I hope. Yep. In yep. 2006, 2007, there actually was a fentanyl outbreak in North America. Mm-hmm. It happened around the Chicago area. And about 700 people ended up dying, and they, it was mysterious because what the heck was, was killing them? And they were found, the first time people were found with, with the needle still in their veins, mm-hmm. dead. That's mm-hmm. how quickly the lethality had struck. So the chemist-toxicologist took a look and said, this is fentanyl, And it's an anesthesia that's used, an anesthesia that's used in, in uh, surgery. Highly effective when used in very small doses because of its potency. It's 50 times greater than, than the high-potency heroin mm-hmm. in terms of its lethality and its impact on the brain, and it suppresses respiration. Mm-hmm. So they said, this is, this is a fentanyl. It must be diverted from the uh, pharmaceutical market, or from the hospital anesthesia episodes, and uh, that's, we'll try to find where it's coming from. We'll know when eventually they traced it down, the DEA got involved, They traced it to a rogue lab in Toluca, Mexico, where some college professor who knew chemistry had figured out how to synthesize this stuff on his own, and they were sending it into the United States, and it was just killing heroin addicts, one after the other, because they were used to the old dose, and less fewer than 2 milligrams Mm -hmm. of this substance Mm -hmm. killed. Mm -hmm. If you're opiate-naive and you take 2 milligrams is a couple of grains in salt, mm-hmm. of salt on the, on the bottom of the shaker. Mm-hmm. So we knew it was lethal, and then we knocked down that lab, arrested the guy, and the fentanyl disappeared. In 2013, 2014, I got wind of seizures in the, in the Mexican border area, coming across the border, and it was fentanyl, and it was about 10 pounds. And the next year it was 190 pounds. In 2015, when I first started writing about this, it reached 197.5 pounds, and I was stunned. Mm-hmm. Well, yesterday, six, seven years later, DEA put out a press statement. They are now seizing 20,000 tons mm-hmm. of fentanyl coming across the border in addition to the pharmaceutical pills that are counterfeits.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It's made to look like oxycodone or some other hydromorphone or some other uh, legitimate pharmaceutical and they are con- actually secreting fentanyl in these things. And what we're seeing at that level, uh, that many pounds per year, that is enough to kill every man, woman, and child in the United States at a two milligram separation for lethality. Every single, so what on earth is this a mass poisoning event, Seth? It's no longer our mentality to say, well, this is drug addiction, people get caught in dependency, we got to treat them, we got to do something. No, this is, become qualitatively different phenomenon. Sentinel is showing up that people are requesting because they want that powerful high if they're long-term users, but it's also killing people who are naive, who are buying what they think online is just an oxycodone pill or a Percocet. Or at a party. Yeah. At a and party, they may fentanyl, be thinking they're taking a they're Vicodin. And they dying yep. unawares. Right.
1: right, or at a party, right? Uh, I mean, this is the problem we're seeing with youth deaths. So many young adult deaths and, and, and even high school and college student deaths, they, they aren't perhaps in the population, as some others are, actively sinking fentanyl, but they do think they're getting something like, as you say, an opioid, perhaps a Vicodin or an oxycodone or something like that and that happens to be laced with fentanyl and that is what terminates their life, one and done.
2: Unawares and tragic because the basically innocent made a silly mistake, tried to get something online. DEA says 6 out of 10 of the pills now being offered as painkillers online are laced with fentanyl and it's increasing and the people who make the stuff and put it in don't care.
3: Yeah,
2: they're, They're basically not good chemists and they mix the dose up too much, and they know it's going to do damage, but they move on. However, why the heck is this stuff starting up? We're not a small lab in Toluca, Mexico. Right. We're seeing metric ton quantities of fentanyl being manufactured in Mexico. Well, hang on, how did we get there? Well, initially, China was a source. Mm-hmm. China was making fentanyl in its chem labs, Criminal gangs with maybe some government oversight and and complicity involved here were sending it through the mails to U.S. teenagers. And it is now a leading killer of youth in the United States, fentanyl overdose. Well, we put some pressure on China and cracked it down on it, and they said, oh, okay, okay, we won't send any more fentanyl. But what they immediately did was triangulate and started to send the precursor chemicals. This is a synthetic drug. It doesn't come from poppy in the high altitude of of the Mexican mountains in Sierra Madre. It is a laboratory product that uses precursor chemicals exactly the same way methamphetamine does. The Chinese have been notorious for shipping metric tons of methamphetamine precursor to the Mexican cartels, who then made meth with it and pushed it across the border, high-potency meth in the last few years. Well, they've repeated the trick now with fentanyl, taking precursor chemicals, sending them to their partners. They are These going to a new generation. Uh, are the major cartel players, particularly along the border. They no longer need the peasants growing crops somewhere to harvest heroin. Yeah. All they do is synthesize in the lab and secret it across the border, and it's extremely small packages, very difficult to detect. And with an open border policy effectively in place in the United States and the flow of people from Central America, from Mexico, undeterred and unchecked, and the flow of commerce that we always have with Mexico, that means that we are now seeing thousands of pounds of fentanyl derived from metric tons of precursors sent by China to their cartel partners. And Chinese chemists have even gone into Mexican labs to teach them how to make it better. And then the last piece of this, Seth, is that the Chinese are on the other end. They've become some of the premier money launderers in the entire world for drug transactions. They're collecting the U.S. dollars coming out of the fentanyl and heroin and methamphetamine trade and converting them into Chinese currency, laundering the money and supplanting it in their banks, And there are good arguments and evidence that this is policy, not mistakes, not rogue criminal gangs, but that the Chinese Communist Party is strategically involved in either with complicity in turning a blind eye or some sort of active participation because of their strategic benefits from this that 's the argument, and there is evidence to support that kind of concern
1: let me Let me pause you right there as we take a quick commercial break david you 've talked about the supply problem here. Let me talk with you a little bit on the demand problem sure. uh, here as well in the next segment if I can. Um, boy, you talk about the, the, the volume that is coming in. Remember, we used to say with terrorism, you know, we have to be right. Our law enforcement and intelligence agencies have to be right every time. The terrorists just have to be right once. Think about these volumes. You think about the stressors placed on Customs and Border Patrol. My God, they, they may be the front lines in keeping Americans safe from from really really a drug holocaust. David Murray from uh, the Hudson Institute, senior fellow. Hudson.org is their website. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Uh, Dr. David W. Murray, senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, co-director of the uh, their Center for Substance Abuse Policy Research, Hudson.org website. Uh, he and John Walters just put out a briefing, Fentanyl is a Public Health and National Security Threat with some concepts and ideas on what we might do to get our hands around it. In our previous segment, we talked about the supply side of this, if you can divide it that way. David, talk to me a little bit about some of the demand here, if you will. Um, The supply wouldn't come if there wasn't a demand, and let's talk about the word surrender as well. I'm sure that's a word you're well familiar with in 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 this problem.
2: I, I got your I got your drift here, uh, Seth. I think you're extremely accurate, and your comment just before we went to break about the we, we can we can only afford to be wrong once, cuz they only have to win yeah. once. Yeah. For us to really run into into the propeller here. Yeah. That's, that's an astute observation because that's the kind of damage that can be done. Yeah. Surrender is not inapt here because the administrator. Well, let me start with just what, what is the demand? Sure dimension here with regard to treatment in particular can anything be done yes we now have an unknown total number of people but a large number based on national surveys and responses from law enforcement and responses from hospital emergency rooms but one of the difficulties in our evaluating the scope of the need for treatment and help is that two or three of the key data sets that we use to measure Chronic high-intensity use—we're we're disbanded. We're, we're underfunded. The Obama administration let them languish and then die. Mm-hmm. So we lost our capacity to measure the true scope of the impact on people, other than the national household survey, which only catches people who are in households in stable situations. Right. And since many heroin addicts are now getting tripped with fentanyl, are not in stable situations. They're we're lying to them. Yeah, we're undercounting. Yeah, where they are, how many they are, how much they're using. (laughs) We only hear about them when the ambulance shows up, right? Right. If at all, right. So we're not monitoring this carefully. Nevertheless, there is a treatment response, which is we have medication assisted therapy only for the opiates. Mm -hmm. Well, fentanyl is an opiate, so it fits. Mm -hmm. You can respond to fentanyl by first either introducing the naloxone or Narcan reversal medication mm-hmm. that reverses the impact on the brain's respiratory control centers that lets people come back from, from having lost their breath and their consciousness mm-hmm. because it's an opioid. But you can also introduce to them treatment medications like buprenorphine or methadone and naltrexone. These are the three that are widely available and need to be more widely available But people are regarding them as a magic bullet of some sort. They are not. They're a useful tool. They are not a strategic solution to the problem. People who take these drugs routinely can be more careful and can stay away from the craving and lure of fentanyl. But they make a mistake again. Like I say, many people die who are simply unawares, like young kids. Don't realize what they're getting. So how do you there's no demand for treatment there.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I always people always tell me, well, it's the United States' demand for treatment or demand for drugs rather keeps us going. You know that's somewhat true. But in the fentanyl case, it actually has been a supply driven phenomenon.
3: Mm.
2: No one was asking for fentanyl mm. before it showed up. Mm-hmm. The, the traffickers began to put it into the pills and people became addicted to the higher potency and the consequence thereof, and some do seek it. Many you're trying to avoid it, mm-hmm. and nonetheless it 's pushed because it's cheaper and smaller and it's more it's better business for the, for the traffickers, so you can 't always say that u s demand is what drives the whole the whole show. I mean you might as well say we must have a bunch of Venezuelans at the border because of the u s demand for Venezuelans. you know I know there there's a push operation going on here out of the socialist countries that are fleeing and seeking refuge or asylum status that we got to accommodate that both of these things are going on. Yeah. So can we give people reversal drugs? Yeah. But, you know, it's a little bit tricky because here's the biggest problem when we do the surveys of the literally small numbers of millions of people who need addiction treatment. Mm -hmm. The major reason they don't get it is not a funding issue. It's not that the tailored resources weren't right there in their community. It's that, quote, they weren't seeking it. Yeah. They did not think they had a problem. Yeah. Or if they did, they thought, well, I'm going to quit soon, or I don't need it yet. Well, I'm just a little longer. And they are not seeking treatment. How do you motivate people to go and seek the treatment that they need if you cannot encourage them to realize their jeopardy and to take the action that could save their lives? Yeah in the diversity here now when you said surrender, yeah. in the face of that incentive to help people get the help they need, to help people not fall into this trap, we are making it more available. We are making it more normalized. We are undermining our prevention and deterrence capacity by the harm reduction policies this administration has capitalized upon and treats as their priority involvement. Harm reduction policies like Making the drugs available, Mm -hmm. like having people have clean needles, Mm -hmm. like providing for safe injection facilities where people can seek the drugs and treat them and and be administered those drugs from from a, quote, pharmaceutically safe supply. But what they're doing basically is eroding the capacity of our system to uphold the norms against using drugs. And I believe, unfortunately, that the drugs become more available, more widespread, the ease of use and the acknowledgement that we're doing this and enablement of the process of doing it means that in the aggregate, we continue to lose people. Even people who came in with an overdose, almost died, got Narcan, and revived, you send them back into the community again, and they repeat and repeat and repeat these episodes. And more and more of them are drawn in, and in the aggregate, the death rate continues to rise. We've seen that in British Columbia, Canada. We've seen that in Baltimore. We've seen that in Washington, D.C. And the march of overdose deaths does not seem to be stopped by decriminalizing drug access or providing harm reduction, assuaging their need by providing it by the government.
1: Our friend, uh, our mutual friend, Dr. William Bennett, former drug czar as well as was John Walters, and you worked in those offices, uh, David. He, he likens the, the, the idea of, of Narcan, which is obviously a useful and important tool given where we are, but the idea oh. that you can rely on that, I think his, his, his metaphor was, we're, it's, it's, it's like sending children into a, a viper pit with a little anti-venin when what we should be doing is killing the vipers and saying, do not enter. Uh, uh, let me let me take another quick well commercial did, break uh, and let you respond. Well did, yeah, let me let me have you respond to that a little bit with uh, on the other side of this break, if I could, David, yep. because one of the things that um, has bothered me so much in this is organizations with the scepter of credibility by calling themselves departments of public health, as in San Francisco, as in New York City. Putting up fairly glamorous posters of people having a gay old time using this crud, and um, and saying, you know, use with friends, start slowly, use in a safe place. Uh, we didn't do that with nicotine and tobacco and cigarettes, did we? Let me have you respond to that when we come right back. David Murray, uh, Dr. David W. Murray, Senior Fellow at the Hudson Institute. He just released a piece, Fentanyl is a Public Health and National Security Threat, a policy brief with uh, John P. Walters, the President of the Hudson Institute, all accessible at Hudson.org. David, I I have a lot of contempt for departments of public health in certain cities in this country that are putting out posters or at least putting their names on posters and billboards telling uh, people if they have a uh, fentanyl or heroin addiction that uh, they should go slow start easy do it with friends be you know don't do this alone and uh and also telling you some safe places where you can go to get the clean paraphernalia needed to do it safely this this is not the strategy we've done with cigarettes uh this is not the strategy we did with forest fires Um, david how can these people call themselves departments of
0: public health
2: well, Seth, I, I know it's a, it's a very problematic issue. Unfortunately, the mentality of the harm reductionists, that I would, where I would summarize the basic approach here, including you know, trying to accommodate the presence, knowing the people will use, try to get them to do so more, more safely if possible. And we're with you guys. You know, we don't want to make you stop. They, they seem to have succumbed to two tragically false ideas. They're trying hard but they represent not only many departments of public health, particularly in large cities, but they also represent the academy. Mm -hmm. The majority of professors and drug policy specialists also subscribe to this notion because they think they bought into something that became even earlier than drug use itself. It had to do with American sexuality, with pregnancy, with changes in, in gender identities. People developed the idea that the crisis here is a crisis of stigma. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: The crisis here is a crisis of judgment.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: We are judging these people as having morally failed, and that must stop, so argue the public health and academicians, because it is the stigma of our judgment that leads them into danger. If we could just accept and acknowledge and work with them and reach out a hand, they would gladly get into treatment and recovery, even though there's no more incentive to do so, because we've decriminalized and made it available. It, it's, this, it's this notion that it is the judgment of the morals of a bourgeois society that cause these problems, and therefore they see themselves as liberating the drug user from the judgment of others for their own good. That, that's one false notion. The second false notion, my impression is, stigma is a tool. It's a tool that the mole can use to bring up children, to get drunk drivers off the road, to get people from committing self-harm, and to prevent people from committing crimes against each other. Sigma is one of the ways we say, this is the path, these are the right things to do, this is your duty, this is how you fulfill your humanity, this is how you give kindness and become a better person. That's an expectation we need to have. The second one is, however, they have a false belief somehow that they have tools in their hands that can make this safe. Yeah. Drug using can be safe is the implication of these posters you talk about. we will give out fentanyl test strips that will somehow be used before the person uses, and if they find fentanyl in the test strip, then they'll know. Well, they'll know what? <laughs> they'll know not to take it. Yes, yeah, so but we looked at this. We tested it. What happens is, People who are deeply dependent yeah. take off the test strips, find the fentanyl, and then use it. And yeah. kind of, oh, I, I got, it. I found some. And it's not—it's used perversely in ways we didn't anticipate. Second thing is, well, if they do overdose, just have a nurse standing by with a syringe filled with, and here's the image that you talked about with, with uh, Dr. Bennett, yeah. in terms of the, the, the pit vipers out there. Yeah. But not they have reversal, and they'll come back. That's only true, Seth, for the opiates and only for the heroin-level potency. Yeah. It is no longer a guaranteed pullback into into recovery to give someone naloxone or Narcan that reverses the overdose when it's high-potency fentanyl. You might need several doses. Mm. They can relapse back into the coma of respiratory failure. Mm. Moreover, the opiates are synthesized, and rapidly spreading into new forms that are not even any longer opiates. Mm -hmm. New forms of synthetic drugs are now on the street, mixed together with cocaine, with methamphetamine, and with fentanyl, that are also capable of respiratory suppression, also capable of killing, and are absolutely recalcitrant to naloxone and narcan. No one comes back. A drug like xylazine, for instance, is now in some 30-some percent of overdose deaths in Philadelphia. Wow! It's an animal tranquilizer that wow. does not affect the opioid receptors. Wow. And it's mixed with fentanyl, and it's still killing people. Wow. And you can give them test strips, or you can give them Narcan, and it's to no avail. We've lost another one. There must be some measure of accountability of society's obligations to our own citizens, to find a way to protect them. And that means keeping the law and using drug courts and mandating that people get into treatment. And if they do get into treatment and recover, then you expunge whatever criminal record there is. The role of the law is important in this, and we're moving under harm reduction in the wrong direction. We're letting down the laws, we're dropping the barriers to drug use and normalizing it. This is counterproductive,
1: Sam. David, you have spent time with several administrations, presidential administrations, spent time in them uh, working this issue. Is it a little surprising to you, given how once upon a time, at least at the very minimum decent uh, then-Senator Joe Biden, was on this in the 80s and 90s, that there isn't more being done from the White House right now?
2: You know, I, uh, it's been a great lament I think that having served with John Walters in two terms under George W. Bush and then serving, I became a senior executive service uh, per, uh, person in the federal government. I stayed on when Obama came in and lived through Obama one, and then the middle of Obama two is when I finally decided that I needed to, to retire and leave the service. Yeah. And I was somewhat no in dismay because yeah. so many things that had been accomplished, during the eight years of Bush, a good fight was fought, and much of this was being held in abeyance, and some things were even going down. The amount of cocaine was being brought in from Colombia, the use of cocaine, the amount of young people, a quarter of them, was the number that dropped in high-potency marijuana use during those, that period of time. These began to unravel, these policies. We don't sustain good policies, and Obama initiated a series of reversals including legitimating marijuana recreationally and commercially at the state level, it's been a disaster. And it's feeding the epidemic from below with high-potency marijuana creating people seeking high levels of intoxication and moving on into the opiates. Same time, the White House under President Trump and under President Biden has not really corrected course. I think Trump's people were definitely serious and definitely well-intentioned, but keeping focus on all the things that were happening and whacking them around, there wasn't a great deal that changed. And then, unfortunately, under the administration of Joe Biden, the unraveling has now become an accelerated pace. and the people who most pushed for this new mentality, the new model of the acceptability and the harm reduction, seem to be totally in charge And the Joe Biden once upon a time was a forceful, vigorous law enforcement advocate seems to have lost his way.
1: Yeah. I, You know, as someone who tries to follow this and track this, uh, you may be better than the average person. I, I'm just sitting here thinking I couldn't off the top of my ho- head even name you the last two, possibly three drug czars. I mean, that's how missing in action th- these administrations have been, at least from my perspective, David. Um, but you, you feel free to make a final comment uh, before I let you go, uh, if you'd like on that or anything else uh, to our public here, sir.
2: Well, I I've been pretty critical here. I, I think it's important to realize there are some very good people serving in the drug czar's office. Good. And Dr. Uh, Gupta, uh-huh. the first position to actually head the office, is a terrific guy who no doubt has a heart of gold and well-intentioned and is a smart guy, but he's not getting the leadership and the support yeah. from Congress, from the administration, to go out and do what he needs to do. One of the first things that happened after... Uh, John left office was they demoted the office yeah. from a cabinet level down to just an advisory group, and then they cut the staff, and then they cut the budget, and then they cut the authority, and then they moved him into other offices, and they got a little dispirited. But the stalwart people who work there at, at DEA, at ONDCP, and, and Customs and Border Protection, uh, just, uh, you can name the agencies that are law enforcement, criminal justice, Department of Justice people, There are still strong, brave, intelligent men and women fighting the good fight, but they're not being led, and they're not being given clear strategies. My impression is they need to have a plan of action and a strategic set of steps, and they need to be remoralized to this notion that we can do something about this, and we have the obligation to do something about this. My impression is it's just a matter of leading those people and recalling them to their duty
1: well david murray uh you're in washington dc where they are you can let them know if it helps in your conversations with them they have a friend uh in phoenix and uh, all i can say is i am uh, honored and privileged and delighted and the better man for being able to call you a friend and a teacher i thank you for your time i thank you for your great work on this issue sir uh, thanks for having me on. You betcha. David Murray, folks, from the uh, Hudson Institute, senior senior fellow there. If you want to take a look at his most recent piece he did with John P. Walters, uh, you can go to Hudson.org. Uh,
3: fentanyl is a public health and national security threat. You bet it is. We'll be right back. If you are concerned with stock market volatility, our friends at Y
1: Refi have an investment for you in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market. You can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, and there's no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees; you're paid monthly, and your interest is compounded daily. It's a secure, collateralized portfolio that delivers an up to ten point two five percent rate of return. That's right, ten and a quarter. Percent a due diligence approved firm. You can check Y Refi out at InvestYRefi dot com. That's Invest the letter Y, then R E F Y com, or give them a call at eight 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 Y Refi thirty four. That's eight 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 Y Refi thirty four. You know, thinking about the issues uh, we were talking about with David Murray, um, it's um, the drug addiction issues. Awful in and of themselves. Uh, any family that has struggled with this, anyone who themselves has struggled with this, this is a particularly challenging time of year, of course. Um, and uh, what we'll do tomorrow, I think we do this almost every Christmas, don't we, Bill? Uh, we'll bring in uh, Steve Moak Jr. to talk uh, with us about strategies on how to help family members, how to help yourself uh, if uh, this is a struggle or challenge in you or your friends' or family's lives. Uh, but we also need to think and rethink public policy, which is what I've kind of committed myself here to do as best as I can. I uh, have a, a few ideas and a few thoughts and a few concepts that I would uh, love to share uh, with the incoming uh, governor's administration. I Sent it to. Uh, I sent a, a working paper to one of their people, and uh, we can hope that um, they will take this seriously. Because, as uh, as we've had to learn in this system, federalist system, where the feds where the feds don't, uh, the states must. And when you think about the rising uh, addiction and death toll throughout the country, but also here in Arizona, where the feds outside of border patrol, customs, and border patrol aren't doing very much, uh, we need to step up here. In a huge way. Huge. Uh, our task is new, so we must think anew, as Abraham Lincoln put it. And uh, if anyone in your earshot uh, is going to work for the new gubernator, gubernatorial administration, uh, give me a call. I have some ideas and I'd love to help. The situation and the issue
3: really requires it. We'll be right back. Welcome back to uh, the
1: Seth Liebson Show. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us, some of uh, some of your day with us. Uh, kind of a heavy hour, um, but it needed to be. It's, it's an issue that uh, requires it. And if you have second doubts about that, just go back to the very first segment of this hour with uh, Dr. David Murray and the outline of the problem we're dealing with with fentanyl. And, you know, the interesting thing about that is that was just one drug. It's not even the most prevalent drug um, in. It's not even the most prevalent drug problem, drug problem use drug in certain counties in Arizona. As much as we are now beginning to hear about it, uh, other counties are still wrestling with other things and like methamphetamines. Uh, we have a big problem. We have a big problem in this state, and uh, you know, we're going to unfortunately have more. Youth developmental problems uh, exacerbated, obviously, by the covid mitigation strategies, but also exacerbated by the drug use issues. Um, Next time we have a massive, traumatic, violent experience, and I hope we don't. God knows we pray and hope it doesn't happen, but whether it's involving a school shooting or a theater or something like that. Um, I hope they don't bury what is increasingly common in the news as one of the drivers, or at least one of the uh, one of the uh, one of the accelerants in that mentally disturbed person's violent actions. Because when you scratch the surface of any of these stories, whether we're talking the Pulse nightclub, whether we're talking Gabby Giffords shooting in Tucson, or the Uvalde, Texas shooting, you're going to find drugs underneath almost all of these incidents. There are a lot of reasons to get serious about it. We're nowhere near close, but we are running out of time. All right. Pick it up a little bit tomorrow. God bless you all. Until then, I am Seth Leibson and class is
0: dismissed.